Great. Well, it's August the 20th, so naturally I want to talk about Christmas. It's only 18 weeks to go after all. When I was young, uh, one of the highlights of Christmas was always uh, my grand's amazing Christmas pudding. And every year she would hide inside the pudding some of these silver uh, threepenny bits, threepence pieces. Um, When I found one, uh, I would kind of have a look at it and kind of check with my parents and discovered this was old money. No shop's going to take this coin anymore. Fortunately, my gran very kindly agreed to exchange the old coin uh, for a pound coin. I thought one pound for three pence, that's a pretty good deal. So I went ahead, year after year. Turns out that the old three pence pieces were actually worth a lot more than the one pound my gran was offering. Every time I handed it over, for just a quid. Now, imagine if I'd have been a bit smarter. For those of you who know me, just go with it, okay? (laughs) Imagine I'd taken it to an expert to get it valued. The expert can carefully inspect all the different characteristics, the qualities of this coin. And at this point, he's getting very excited because one silver threepence coin could be worth up to 800 times what my gran was offering me. The expert has examined the qualities of the coin. He's understood the true value of it. And seeing the value of it has led him to appreciate its worth, which results in great joy and excitement. And that's what we see here in Psalm 95. The writer calls us to look on the qualities, on the characteristics of God. He calls us to see the true value of God, and he calls us to respond in joyful and genuine worship. So here in Psalm 95, we're going to see, we're going to see the reason for worship, we're going to see the struggle for worship, and we're going to see the call to worship. That's where we're going this morning. Uh, So we're going to start off by looking at those qualities of God's character that are the reason for our worship. I don't know if you noticed, um, Psalm 95 contains six invitations uh, to worship in verses 1, 2, and 6. And each of these invitations is then followed in verse 3 and verse 7 by the word for, the word because. So the thrust of the psalm is this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, verse 1, because, verse 3, the Lord is the great God. Uh, Then in verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship, verse 7, because he is our God. The psalmist is calling God's people to worship because of who God is and what he's done. Now, uh, Tim Keller suggests that what we worship is the deepest desire of our hearts, what we put our hope in. If I have that, then I will have meaning in life. Then I'll be happy. Then I will know who I am. That's what we live for. That's what controls us. That is what we worship. We've ascribed ultimate value to that thing. We only worship what we think is going to make us happy, satisfied, joyful, complete, 
what makes us feel safe and secure, what gives us our meaning and our identity. We worship something when we see such great value in it that it changes the very way that we live. See, if I'd have truly understood the value of the coin that I found in that Christmas pudding, I'd have responded very differently to my grand's offer of one pound. And the psalm points us to the qualities that show us the value and worth of God. So first of all, verse 3, God is the greatest. Now I need some help from uh, the kids uh, and youth here today. So does anyone know what the phrase goat stands for? Yeah, it means greatest of all time. Yeah. So um, now Psalm 95 has no doubts at all about who the true greatest of all time is. Verse 3 um, tells us, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. He is the King who rules over any other gods that people might be tempted to worship. Whether it's the, the idols that people worshipped in Bible times, or the modern gods of celebrity, money, career, approval, or family. In terms of worship... God is infinitely more worthy than anything or anyone else. The so Psalm 95 calls us to worship because he is the greatest. Because God is the one who rules over and made all of creation. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So another question uh, the Kids Club guys. If your parents say to you, please tidy your bedroom from top to bottom, what do they mean? Go for it. Yeah, tidy it all, everything. They're not going to be happy if you only tidy the top bit and the bottom bit and leave the middle bit messy. They want you to tidy everything. Well, it's the same here. The psalmist is using the top and bottom language to show God rules everything from the lowest parts, the depths of the earth, through to the highest, the mountain peaks. It's all in God's hands. It all belongs to him. There's no part of creation that is beyond God's perfect rule. And if there's no part of creation that's beyond God's perfect rule, then there's no part of our lives that are beyond his perfect rule either. Again, we see the same kind of thing in verse 5. The psalm uses the poetic language of extremes. God made both the wet seas and formed the dry land. God created everything. There's nothing that exists that was not made by God. And that means that God made everything that we enjoy. God, everything that we think that we just can't live without. God made it. He made free time. He made relationships, marriage, family, career, money, looks, intelligence, talent. Anything that we're tempted to seek after, anything that we look to for joy or satisfaction is made by God and under his rule. All those things that we think we need to give us deep, lasting joy and contentment. Now, I don't know if you've ever had uh, someone take credit for something that you've done. It happened to me at work a few years ago. I spent months and months working on this project, uh, developing a new system, putting loads of work. 
And at the end, my boss took all the credit for it, even though they'd barely been involved. It's really frustrating. Well, how must it be when God sees millions of people worshipping footballers or musicians or actors or authors and ignoring the one who made them and gave them their talent? Or when God sees people worshipping the world that he created, the scientific order and processes that he established and ignoring the one who brought brought it all about. Or when God sees people worshipping physical intimacy or relationships or family and ignores the one who gave these things as good gifts, as a reflection of his loving character. Psalm 95 calls us to worship the Lord because he rules over the whole creation. Because everything that we have, every good thing that we enjoy, every moment we draw breath, only happens because of him. Next, uh, the psalmist calls people to bow down in worship, to kneel before the Lord our maker, because in verse 7, he is our God. and We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. You see, the psalm uses uh, really personal language here. God is not just the great king above all others. He's also our God. He's the one who placed the stars in the sky, and he knows the number of hairs on your head. He's the God who sustains the whole universe. And he's the God that we can approach, bring all of our sorrows and our struggles to. The greatest and most glorious being in all of the universe is our shepherd. Verse 7 says, We're the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, I think when we think of shepherds, we think of something a bit like this. Cute, but it's not the kind of shepherd that you get in Bible times. See, a shepherd had to lead the sheep through tricky places. They had to make sure they were well fed, help them and look out for them. But they also had to protect them from robbers and wolves who might attack. A shepherd had to be brave and strong, willing to fight and defend the flock, to even give their life for the sheep. That's how the shepherd cares for the flock. Psalm 95 calls us to worship the Lord because he is our God, our God, our shepherd, the one who leads, who provides, who protects, and who rescues us. And we haven't even mentioned that right there in verse 1, we're reminded the Lord is also the rock of our salvation, our hope, and our refuge. Now, if we take all of these great truths together, well, surely the result should be worship. We should see all this and we should, we should realize God's great value above all else. Respond in joyful and thankful worship. The trouble is, often we don't respond in the way that Psalm 95 calls us to. The reason the psalm has to call people to, God, uh, to worship God in the first place is that deep down in our hearts, true worship of God is a struggle. This is our second point for this morning, the struggle of worship. I don't know if you noticed when we were reading it, Psalm 95 is a psalm of two halves. We start in the first seven verses with this really joyful call to worship, this detailed list of God's character and qualities. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of verse 7, we get this sudden change and we get this warning. 
Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day in Massa in the wilderness. What's going on here? Uh, well, we need to uh, understand what the situation was at Meribah and Massa that verse 8 ref- uh, refers to. Uh, if you want to turn back uh, to look, uh, look at it, you can do. Uh, it's Exodus chapter 17, uh, and it's page uh, 75 of the English Bibles, or page 109 of the Chinese Bibles. And here we see that the Israelites struggle to worship God, and it all comes down to a problem of trust. It's a problem of trust. See, in Exodus 17, um, the Israelites have left slavery in Egypt. Uh, they got to a place where there's no water to drink. And so they complained to, uh, to God, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Do you see what they're doing? They're questioning God's power. They're saying, you can't provide what we need. And they're questioning his goodness. Yes, he rescued us, but now you're just going to let us die of thirst. Now, being both powerful, good, and incredibly patient, God provides water for them to drink uh, from a nearby rock. Uh, and in verse 7 uh, of Exodus 17, Moses, uh, says that Moses calls the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and they tested the Lord, saying, is, he among, is the Lord among us or not? Now, the two striking things about this uh, event. First of all, uh, is what happens in the chapters just before this episode. Now, again, here I need some help from the, uh, the kids. Um, so up on the screen, uh, we're going to see a summary of the previous five chapters in Exodus. But some of the letters are missing. Uh, so... I'm wondering if you can help me uh, fill in some of the blanks. So, what about that first one? You can use the Bible or a nearby adult to help. Go on, Hudson. Yeah, God provides manna and quail to eat in Exodus 16. God provides them with food in the previous chapter. What about the second one, Exodus 15? Go on, Laura. Oh, was there someone? No. (laughs) Yeah. So in Exodus 15, God makes bitter water fit to drink. What about Exodus 13? Go on, Eva. Yep, God saves the Israelites through the... Red Sea. Well done. And in Exodus 12, what do we see there? I'll let the grown-ups help on this one. It's easy enough for you. I'll go on, Hudson. Yeah, God saves his people from slavery in Egypt. Great, thank you. So what we've seen right before this event in Exodus 17, we've seen Israelites provided with food, provided with water, and rescued from the Egyptians twice. They've just seen four incredible events showing God's great power, 
and his loving care for them. Now, the second striking thing is that what happens in Exodus 17 is not the last time that this happens. Uh, if you were to turn forward to uh, Numbers chapter 20, you get a massive sense of deja vu. Once again, the Israelites have no water to drink, so they complain to Moses. They say, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no corn or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. It's quite telling, isn't it? Like, no pomegranates, slavery, you know, roughly similar. Once again, in Numbers 20, God provides water from the rock for the Israelites. You see, even though they'd seen his amazing act of salvation, even though they'd seen his loving provision to them again and again, they still did not trust him. The favorite song of the Israelites seems to be, we would have been better off back in Egypt. The level of trust in God is so low, they're saying it would have been better if God had not rescued them. It would be better if God was not their God. And this is why Psalm 95 in verse 9 says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day uh, matter in the wilderness, uh, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. The Israelites had all the evidence in the world to trust God. And instead they hardened their hearts. They refused to trust him. And they don't trust him because they don't see how great he is. They don't recognize the ultimate value of the Lord and maker of all. They're not treasuring him above all else. They don't trust him because they don't worship him. They trust and worship go hand in hand with each other. There's a problem of trust because there is a problem of worship. It's a problem of worship. The response of the Israelites and Master and Meribah is the exact opposite of the worship that we see in Psalm 95 calls us to in verses 1 to 7. Instead of singing for joy, they complain about the God who rescued them. Instead of giving thanks, they say that God wants them to die of thirst. Instead of praising him, they question his goodness, his love, his power. They don't see him as the one who holds the heights and the depths of the earth. They don't see him as the one who, who made all the water and the very dry land that they're standing on. Instead of kneeling before him, they rise up against their saviour and their shepherd. They don't see that God is the most worthy. They don't worship him as he deserves. Because they don't see him as he truly is. The great king above all gods. See, the fact of the matter is that we all worship something. We all live for something. We're by nature worshipping beings. That's why you see thousands of people gathering together to sing the praises of 11 people kicking a round thing around about a piece of grass for 90 minutes. We're made to worship. And so we're always worshipping something. Wherever we are. The psalmist knows this. It's why verse 3 reminds us the Lord is the great king above all gods. All these other gods that we worship are nothing 
compared to the sovereign creator, the one who holds the earth in his hands. If we don't worship God, if we don't recognize him to be the greatest, the one deserving our highest affection, then our hearts are always going to look somewhere else. The problem of worship always comes because we don't see God as he truly is. We value something else as greater than the Lord who made us. That's what the Israelites did in the wilderness. They were valuing something else as greater than the Lord. They wanted uh, the devil that they know. They reckoned that slavery in Egypt beats traveling to the so-called promised land. See, ultimately what they wanted, they wanted the stuff. They wanted the rest. They wanted the provision. They wanted the security. And if God is slow in providing it, then they begin to question if he's worth following at all. They show what they really worship because what they really want is not the Lord but the peace, the prosperity, the security, the rest that they thought and they believed he was offering them. Now, last week, uh, Prabhav shared this quote uh, from John Piper. It says, Sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. Now, if we put this together with the quote from Tim Keller we had earlier, we see sin is the very opposite of worshipping God. Sin is treasuring created things above the one who made them. And sin is the act of giving the ultimate value in our lives to something that does not have ultimate value. See, I'm convinced that all of our sin, all of our failure to trust God, basically comes from not seeing the greatness and glory of God as he is. And so we don't trust his goodness, his power, his wisdom, his sovereign care, his plan, or his guidance. And we turn instead to worship created things that we think can give us the thing, uh, our deepest desires. The problem is all sin, from Genesis 3 onwards, is one big deception. The Israelites would never have been better off back in Egypt. They would have been slaves. They'd been deceived by sin. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this idea. He quotes the the second half of Psalm 95, and then he says this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This is a crucial truth for us to remember, to remind one another of. Sin is always a lie. It's always deceitful. It hardens our hearts by telling us four basic lies. Lie one, sin tells us God is not in control. He cannot do what he's promised or provide what we need. So we have to take care of ourselves. But the gospel tells us that we only need to look at the cross of Christ to see God's sovereign control and a perfect guarantee of all his promises. Line number two, God tells us that, uh, sin tells us that God is not wise. 
but he doesn't know what's best for us. The gospel tells us that God knows us better than we know ourselves. No one else really understood what was happening at the cross, but God, in his great wisdom, was bringing about a great plan of salvation. Line number three, sin tells us that God is not good. It tells us that he just wants to stop us from enjoying life. The gospel tells us that God cares for us so much that he gave us his precious son. In him we have life to the full and a treasure more valuable than all the wealth of human history combined. Line number four, sin tells us that only it can fulfill our deepest desires and satisfy us. When Satan tries to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4, he promises to give him all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus knows that these were not Satan's to give. They belong to the Lord who holds both the depths and the mountain peaks. The gospel tells us that only the Lord who made you can fulfill your deepest desire. In God's perfect forgiving grace, we find the ultimate acceptance that we search for. As we're made like Christ Jesus, we we find the identity and the completeness that we desire. As we enjoy the loving welcome of a heavenly father, we find the home, the safety and the security and rest that we long for. The gospel tells us that in our great God, we find a love so deep, so perfect, so complete, that there's absolutely nothing in the whole of existence that can separate us from that love. See, sin is the opposite of true worship because it tries to devalue God. It tries to harden our hearts by deceiving us about what he is like and by promising us what only our Heavenly Father can give. And so worship becomes a daily struggle It's a daily struggle. I wonder if anyone can tell me, um, what does the saying, tomorrow never comes, mean? Yeah. Don't don't put things off. Because by the time tomorrow arrives, it's today. It's all too easy, isn't it, to say, that thing I've been meaning to do, uh, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that tomorrow. Verse 7, Psalm 95 says, today... Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Hebrews drives us home. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is cold today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We thought earlier about the fact we're always worshipping something. The challenge that the psalm gives us is a constant reminder. Today, are you worshipping the Lord, the great God? Or are you hardening your heart against him? You're worshipping and valuing something else above him. Where do you look? Do you look to things uh, you think will give you peace and prosperity, security, safety, happiness, joy, contentment, and rest? Or are you looking to God's great act of salvation and creation, his daily sovereign care? Are you looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment and realization of his promise? Are those things greater and sweeter and more delightful to us. These are things that bring us more joy than anything else. 
wherever we are, we will be worshipping something. The struggle, the challenge for us is to ask ourselves, to ask one another, today, right now, in this moment, am I worshipping the Lord of heaven and earth? It's because the psalm is all too aware of the danger of hard hearts, the danger of being deceived by sin. And so he calls God's people together to gaze upon the glory and splendor of the Lord God and to respond in heartfelt worship. So finally we see the call to worship. The call to worship. Psalm 95 is a call to worship together. Psalmist says five times, let us. Verse 1, come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Verse 2, let us come before him. Verse 6, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. The call is for a gathering of God's people. A call for people to gather together to worship him. And if we're to be people who are worshipping him daily, we need to be reminding each other of uh, these truths, the truth of who God is, what he's done. We need to be gathering together. That's why, Grace Church, we place such an emphasis on on community, uh, on being together. As the writer to the Hebrews says uh, in verse uh, 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily. We need one another. We need to be worshipping God together. We need to be encouraging uh, each other. So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, is gathering together with your church family a priority in your week? Is our Sunday gathering something that you make every effort to be a part of? Are you sorry to miss it when you can't be here? Is life group the first thing that goes in your diary uh, for the week? Or is it the first thing that gets dropped when you're busy? Now, I'm not saying that we can't ever miss church or life group. Life happens. Things come up. Life is complicated. You can't always be there. But I'd ask the question of all of us, what's going on in our hearts? Do we want to be here? Do we want to be with our life group? Do we want to be with one another, encouraging each other? You see, we miss out when you're not here. And you miss out when you're not here either, as well. We need you and you need us. We need to be worshipping together to encourage and remind each other of who God is. He's the only one worthy of our highest affection. To help one another, encourage each other not to be deceived by sin and harden our hearts against our Lord. Psalm 95 is also a call to joyful and thankful worship. We're called to sing for joy to the Lord, verse 1, to come to him with thanks. Now, of course, our worship is about much more than the songs that we sing or even what we do on a Sunday morning or a life group. It's about the whole of our lives. But the psalm does address the nature and character of our singing. So how are we supposed to sing for joy if we've had a rubbish week? We're going through a really tough time. How can the psalm call people to sing for joy when he's no idea what's going on in their lives? Well, the call to sing joyfully is not grounded in how our week has been, how our life is going at the moment. It's rooted in the eternal characteristics of God. Whether you feel happiness or sorrow, 
whether you're going through trials or blessing, the psalm points us to the truth that God is the, is the sovereign ruler, the mighty sustainer, the glorious creator. He's our, our God, our shepherd and king. The psalm doesn't call us to false happiness, but a joy that goes beyond our present circumstances. A deep joy that can say, yes, I'm going through suffering. But God is good. His promises are true. I know this suffering will end, and all will be made right. And I can rejoice and delight in the Lord who is faithful and who has made that possible. If you are going through trouble, you are going through a time of trial, then come to God. He's the one who is with you. And lean on your church family as well. That's why God puts us in community to encourage and help and look after one another. This is not about minimizing the struggles you may be experiencing. It's about maximizing your view of our Lord God. The psalm calls us to take our eyes off our own circumstances and to gaze on the great and glorious God, to delight and to take joy in him. So what does this mean for our singing? When we sing together, are we giving it our all? Or are we half-hearted, distracted, or we just don't really care that much? If we're singing to encourage each other of the glory and worth of God, how does half-hearted singing encourage us? And what does it say to visitors and people looking in uh, and what we believe? I found an interesting quote from uh, Eddie Izzard, the comedian, who says, there's something phenomenally dreary about Christian singing. They're the only people who can sing hallelujah without it feeling like it's a hallelujah. Clearly, he's had a bad experience. But it is obvious uh, to him that it's something we need to think about. Now, I'm not saying... When we're singing together, everyone should have a big smile and have your arms in the air and be dancing, you know, looking like you're having a great time. This works completely differently for every single person. But it's about what's going on in our hearts. But if we look completely bored, or like we don't really care about what we're singing about, what does it say about how much we're engaging with what, uh, or believe what we're singing? And if you're here and you just really don't feel like it, if you're really feeling in the depths, then can I encourage you, let the truths of the songs that we're singing teach and remind you of who God is, what he's done, and ask him to inspire in you the deep joy that comes from knowing him. And this doesn't stop with our actual singing. What about the rest of our lives? Do we proclaim the truth of who God is in everything that we do? Do our lives sing and shout with joy and thankfulness despite our circumstances? At home, at work, in the car, in the lecture theatre, in the office, in the classroom, in the park, in the pub, are we living lives of worship that point people to the unchanging glorious reality of the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that we need to try harder. We need to work harder and be better at this. I'm saying we need to fix our eyes on God and we need to encourage each other uh, in this and help each other. It only comes from when we see how glorious God is.
Psalm 95 is a call to sing with deep joy, with thanksgiving, with praise for God, for who he is and what he's done. It's a call to change our hearts, to set our eyes on God's all-surpassing beauty, glory, love, power and care. It's a call to worship him, whatever our circumstances are. Because he is the same great God, yesterday, today and forever. And lastly, Psalm 95 calls us to come and worship with humility, to recognize our position before God. Verse 6, come let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We recognize that he is the king above all. Uh, We don't approach him lightly, but we can come to him with confidence. Uh, I sometimes wonder what it must be like for uh, Prince Harry. Uh, The queen is the queen, but she's also grandma. So how does he relate to her? Is she grandma or is she the queen? Well, I suspect he mainly relates to her as grandma. But he remembers at the same time that she is the queen. And she can set the corgis on him if he steps out of line. The Lord is our heavenly father. But he's also our great God, our Lord and creator. The call to worship is one of submission, of recognition, of reverence. And one of the ways that we do this is we worship by hearing and responding rightly to the voice of God. Verse 7, today if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We worship God by listening to his voice and by responding. We need the humility and the trust to recognize that our great God, our creator, our shepherd, has the right to lead us and guide us by his word. We should be ready and willing to hear him, to respond to what he says. See, our worship is as much about how we respond to the voice of God as it is to how we use our own voices to sing his praises. So when we hear God's voice, how do we respond? Is it with humility and submission? Do we trust that he is good, he is wise, he is in control? Do we trust that he wants our ultimate good? Do we trust that he is at work in us, making us more like Jesus? Do we trust and worship our great Lord by hearing and responding to the loving challenge and correction of his word. Psalm 95 is a call for us to worship because worship God because of who he is. He's our great God, our creator, our provider, our shepherd. It calls us to worship because of all that he has done in rescuing us and all that he is doing in bringing us to his glorious eternal kingdom and rest. The psalm calls us to come together, to worship joyfully, thankfully, encouraging one another as we do so. The psalm calls us to worship by hearing and responding to God's voice with heartfelt trust every day. The psalm calls us to worship because that is what we were made for and that is what we were saved for. The psalm calls us to see the value, the worth, the glory, the beauty, the preciousness of our great Lord God and to delight in him above all else. So let us come and sing for joy to the Lord. Let us bow down to our maker.
as long as it is called today, today and every day. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the great king, the great king above all gods. You are the one who holds all of creation, the one who made all of creation. That you are our God and our shepherd. You are the one who leads and provides for us. Lord, we know that our hearts are fickle. We know that we, uh, we are tempted to wander off, to not trust you, to forget your goodness. And so, Lord, please help us. Please may we be a, a community of your people who remind each other, who constantly point each other to your glory and your goodness, who constantly encourage each other not to be deceived by sin, and who constantly encourage each other to be people who worship you in every part of our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are God who is so worthy of our worship. And Lord, please help us. Please change our hearts. Please make us, help us to be people who worship you because we see who you are and your great worth. Lord, we thank you and be with us uh, this week and always. Amen.